0: Alright, so good afternoon. Uh, hopefully everybody is having a great reinvent. Um it's been a little wild, right? So my name is Nicholas Rosamatos. Uh, I work for Red Hat in the uh, CCSB group, which is the uh, certified cloud service provider group. And I work specifically with, uh, uh, emerging technologies, um, both within the cloud, uh, on-premise and hybrid. So today we're talking a little bit about OpenShift, um, then we're gonna bring out one of our customers, CA, and they're gonna talk about how they're using OpenShift currently, and then we're gonna actually do a, a full demonstration of OpenShift N10. So uh, a little bit about Red Hat and AWS. Um, I'm sure most everybody here is familiar with Red Hat and AWS, um, but just in case, obviously. Uh, so Red Hat, we've been trusted in the industry uh, for over nine years currently. Um, We're the number one leading uh, provider of commercial IT products and solutions based on open source software at this time. Uh, We've been trusted in industries for over nine years working in collaboration with uh, uh, AWS. Um, We currently have almost 9,000 employees and we're continuing to grow. And uh, one thing that's really interesting is uh, 99.9% of our uh, enterprise customers um, trust us with their environment so we help them reach 99.9% uptime. And then Amazon Web Services, Uh, they've had 10 years in cloud leadership. Um, Currently 35 availability zones. I believe that's actually more now. And uh, spanning 13 geographic regions, which I also believe is more now. And uh, they've made over 700 service improvements uh, since 2015. So uh, Red Hat and AWS um, have kind of collaborated in a lot of ways to actually bridge the gap um, when it comes to hybrid-based clouds, right? So, uh, OpenShift, the the initial design of it, and and as it continues to grow, we tried to make it agnostic from the environment, right? So, cloud agnostic, infrastructure agnostic. So, essentially, wherever you can actually run Red Hat Enterprise Linux in a support, uh, supported design or certified, uh, you could actually do it. So, AWS Cloud helps you leverage that, and you can use OpenShift in in either or. Um, so Red Hat on Open or Red Hat OpenShift on AWS. Uh, so we've noticed over time, right, transform, uh, transformation of applications and infrastructure and process, right? So we move from uh, monolithic large applications to kind of more of a n-tier, fault domain type of uh, environment. Um, you know, virtual machines, things along those lines. And then, obviously, we're moving towards microservices. Um, what we've realized over the years is the fact that virtual machines sometimes sit idle. Right? They are only used for a certain period of time. And the rest of the time, they're just consuming resources, money, time, cooling, etc. And then, development process. Um, we moved from waterfall to agile, and now everybody is talking about DevOps. Right? CI, CD, continuous integration, continuous deployment. And then application infrastructure so we moved from data center to hosted uh, whether that's you know within your own internal organization or data center and cloud now we're seeing true cloud right uh, your own private data center cloud public cloud multiple p- clouds hybrid based approaches uh, things along those lines right and the main design of openshift was that containers to be able to span all of this and tie all of these individual components together right so Um, These changes are driving uh, a lot of the conversations that Red Hat and AWS is having with customers. So OpenShift is Red Hat's answer for container applications. Um, One of the first things that we wanted to make sure when we were designing OpenShift was that it was enterprise-grade. And what I mean by enterprise-grade is the ability to run production-based traffic, right? Not just DevOps, but we wanted it to be able to satisfy requirements for internal and external customers. Um, we also wanted it to be able to run traditional, or as Sometimes re- people refer to them as legacy applications, and Cloud native applications. So stateful, stateless, Persistent storage, uh, things along those lines. Um, and we wanted it to be able to have an integrated hybrid cloud Platform, uh, specifically because n- development and deployment. And uh, it needed to be portable. So, you know, designed to Develop, um, build, manage container-based applications, uh, these These are some of the main fundamentals that we were looking at, and we'll do a presentation on this, but we wanted to make it really simple for uh, developers and operations to turn source code into running applications, right? Uh, We call this source-to-image, and we wanted to simplify that entire process using things like pulling from Git and subversion and Jenkins and such, tying that directly into uh, OpenShift. And then multi-language. And when I say multi-language, I don't mean, you know, Spanish and French and so on and so forth. I mean, tools that your developers use today, the languages that they use today, they should be able to take that and run it in that infrastructure. They shouldn't have to constantly relearn, you know, new tools and new APIs, new programming languages, and things along those lines. It, it, It makes no sense. It just slows down the development process. So, our container adoption. Um, when it comes to containers, the largest open source company in the world, we wanted to make sure that the ecosystem wasn't fragmented, right? And we wanted to preserve the ecosystem by, you know, bringing it all together. Uh, and there's four standards or four pillars um, that we really wanted to focus on. Uh, the first actually started is something that we've been driving for a long time, uh, and it pushed into Linux containers. Um, so that would be things like SE Linux, correct? Um, one of the other things is the ability to scale. Uh, integration, simplified management, and then certification. You don't want to run a, a, a production platform that's not certified, right? Whether that's compliance based or um, on an infrastructure that's not certified. So, benefits for developers. Um, how does OpenShift empower developers, right? So, access to a broad selection of application components, um, deploying application environments on-demand, um, you know, provides a lot of different, uh, benefits, right? Um, the ability to leverage your choice of, uh, interface and integrate with existing tools. So maybe they want to use, uh, you know, Git and Subversion, uh, for source code management. Uh, maybe they want to, you know, use CI CD for, um, continuous integration and continuous deployment. Uh, and enabling collaboration specifically between different teams. So, uh, different teams users objects things along those lines and automating those builds for themselves and then it operations so it's not just all about developers right I, containers simplified the development process but it also needs to simplify it operations otherwise really there's it's only one side of benefit so we have, we have the ability to have the apis and manage replication and things along those lines to deploy secure enterprise uh, container-based applications We want to also enable application developers while Enabling operational efficiency, right? Infrastructure utilization. Things don't need to sit there Idle, right? You should be able to consume all of those Resources. You shouldn't have to necessarily worry about, does My data center have enough space? Do i have enough compute Available? Do i have enough storage available? These vms are sitting there. They're idle all the time. You know, they're just consuming resources. so, we also wanted to develop uh, advanced scheduling and automated placement. So, leveraging as much automation as we possibly could. Um, using also uh, declarative uh, management for applications. And then uh, manage users and teams and integrate with uh, enterprise-based authentication systems, right? OAuth, LDAP, things like that. So, why would you use OpenShift over just rolling your own container platform? Um, how, How many people here are running containers currently? Anyone? Who's running them in production? Okay. Did you roll your own or did you find a solution that you ended up implementing? Okay. It's yes. Okay. So, you know, The thing when you start taking different components, right, let's say you wanted to go and you take Docker and you take Swarm and you take all these other components and you start stringing them together and you take the the hypervisor and the nodes and the master and you start throwing all these things together Um, and you're using maybe an external registry or something along those lines. Do you know what's inside your container? Where you're pulling it from? Do you trust it? I mean, someone might have built it, throw it on Git, you pull it down, you make configuration changes to it, you deploy it. I mean, that's not a great idea, right? Um, how long will applications and libraries be updated, right? Are you gonna pull that down? Or are you gonna maintain it yourself? Uh, will it work from host to host? So, different environments, right? Um, maybe you're running OpenShift or you're running some other application within your own data center, and then you're running ECS, right? Can you use the same tools, can not use the same APIs? Um, and then, can I use the same solution on-premise and in the cloud, which ties into that as well? So a Red Hat certified platform of OpenShift allows trusted uh, source for the uh, hosts and containers, right? Red Hat Enterprise Linux for the host and the nodes. And then, obviously, we do uh, certification on the containers as well. So we actually have our own private uh, repo and registry that we do our own scanning and testing against and validation against. So we can trust the content that's inside the container with security fixes, um, being able to be part of the enterprise application lifecycle and then obviously portability across hosts as I mentioned as long as rel can run there OpenShift can run there So certified container images uh, Certified middleware um, The certified red hat uh, container registry We have a container uh, development kit and then obviously uh, Certification as a service so We leverage a lot of different things for our customers So OpenShift compared to some other platforms right Uh, We wanted to have a better developer experience, Uh, a bigger selection of fully supported services, right? Continuous growth, continuous things being rolled out, new solutions, new integrations, uh, more powerful standard-based orchestration engine, right? Declarative management, uh, making things simple, Uh, more secure, more standard-based container model, right? So that OpenShift shifts with its own registry. You don't have to use an external registry unless you choose to do so, and and that's completely up to you. Some people do, some people don't. Uh, And then, obviously, the OS itself, right? So whatever you're running, you wanna make sure that it's secured, um, and obviously Red Hat's completely open source. You have access to all of that individual code. You can see what's going on when it comes to the community, and we actually have one of the largest communities that's up there. So we chose Docker images for the application services. We chose Kubernetes for the orchestration and the management layer. Uh, We went Docker with the Linux containers. And then obviously, RHEL 7 or Atomic Host, which is um, another version of RHEL. It's more of a stripped-down, bare-bones image. Um, so one thing we also offer, uh, not just that you could roll your own OpenShift environment within uh, AWS, um, it, you could use to do that if you want. Um, we have things like Cloud Access, where you could take your application uh, or subscriptions and convert those over and import them. Um, but we also have what we call OpenShift Dedicated, And that actually is a platform that we manage for the customer. So the customer can only, they they spend their time focusing on deploying and scale of containerized applications and services, right? They don't have to worry about the infrastructure components. Uh, They get premium support from Red Hat. So they can open up a ticket, they can get design, they get architecture documents, they can access the portal, they can participate in the community. We have an upstream project, which is called OpenShift Origin. They can, you know, run things with origin. They can contribute to origin. And uh, you get your dedicated entire OpenShift cluster. So it's actually dedicated resources that are actually built directly from you or for you. Uh, That's multi-tenant for yourself, right, for your different verticals or application groups. But it is your environment. It's not a shared environment. And then uh, we do the setup, maintenance, um, and uh, the cluster dedicated to your organization. Um, and VPN connectivity into your environment If that's what you choose to do so H- Obviously most people do And uh, it's hosted in AWS EC2 In regions of your choice So you might want to span multiple different regions Maybe you go through a customer acquisition They're in a different country Their hardware is old um, Maybe you want to re-architect some of their applications You don't want to build a whole new data center Because all of their stuff is coming end of life and deprecated So you start moving to a different design And this gives you a basic idea of you know, what it allows you to focus on and what Red Hat covers, right? So we cover everything from the container orchestration cluster services all the way down to the physical infrastructure component, right? And then that allows you to focus on middleware, uh, self-service, containerization, automation, things like that. So benefits of uh, Red Hat OpenShift on AWS. Uh, we provide a complete uh, enterprise class, uh, scalable computing environment, and it's simple. That's really it. Uh, we give your organization access to a secure and easy-to-manage platform. So it's changing as your business needs. Um, we also have the power and flexibility of your own OpenShift container platform, which is clustered and uh, built by Red Hat Engineering Operations and Support. And then uh, we host, obviously, with OpenShift dedicated on AWS. Uh, so it's cost-effective, secure, reliable. You get all the benefits of Amazon, each too. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and I'll put, we can provide more information on this, there's some links in then, um, but your Red Hat subscription provides access to technical export, uh, expert support services, things along those lines, um, but also cloud access allows you to take your subscription and move it into the cloud. You don't have to buy new subscriptions. You could actually take your subscriptions and migrate them over. And then when you use Red Hat Linux on uh, EC2, um, you're actually only paying for what you use for. And then uh, pre-existing uh, subscriptions, uh, as I mentioned, cloud access and flexibility to run uh, Red Hat's uh, entire portfolio of software operating. So uh, full stack JBoss on OpenShift, um, we actually support .NET and uh, uh, Microsoft SQL too. So the architecture, what does it look like? So as I mentioned earlier, uh, at the bottom of the stack, you have your own physical or virtual infrastructure. Um, When we developed OpenShift, we wanted it to be infrastructure agnostic, right? You could run it anywhere. And then you have your nodes, right? And your nodes are basically dumb. They have no intelligence whatsoever. Um, There's two primary components when it comes to running OpenShift, obviously the first is the node and they have no intelligence whatsoever. And then you have your pods, a container image or container um, run within a pod and they have all of the dependencies and integration and components um, all rolled into one. So pods are orchestrated using OpenShift. Um, Containers which live within the pods, um, traditionally separated, such as like with fault domains in a sense, um, they get placed wherever they need to get placed. And obviously, you know, you don't want everything running on one individual host, so it separated things out, right? So three pods across three separate individual hosts for high availability, load balancing, and things on those lines. So uh, this infrastructure is not any different than currently probably how we're deploying our own infrastructure today, right? You you don't put everything on a single individual host, and then that host goes down and, you know, suddenly everything's on fire. So masters are the actual control plane. They're the intelligence behind everything, right? And uh, the Kubernetes API server, um, it actually validates and does the configuration for the data for the pods, the services, uh, replication controllers. Um, It also synchronizes information um, and actually does the service uh, uh, configurations then you have the data store uh, which is um the etcd database uh, which is a distributed key value data store Um, it stores the persistent master state uh while the other components watch etcd to make sure that changes bring themselves in line right so when things get out of line i'll show you a little bit about that um it actually uh brings things back in line so it understands failures and things along those lines and uh, typically it's actually deployed in a sense where it's uh, highly available so you don't just have one master you could but You shouldn't. Uh, And then your scheduler is actually one of the most important things, right? Determines where um, your Docker Docker images are going to be deployed. How do you scale? What's the orchestration look like um, in your production environment? Uh, Pulls the Docker images from the registry. um, You know, deploys the pods wherever they need to go. Uh, And the registry tightly uh, integrates and controls where images are being stored, who has access to those images, lifecycle, check-ins, check-outs, things along those lines. Um, so when when you, when you imagine deploying a container uh, or a pod, um, it would pull the Docker image directly from the registry, um, depending on the characteristics that you specify, and um, based on utilization or maybe you have some other, you know, specifications that you want, uh, like such as a placement policy. That's where it needs to be. So in this example, we want a front end application, right? Let's say we're using Tomcat and we have, you know, uh, MongoDB and whatever else you want to consider it to be. And um, th- The big thing to know is n- none of these pods on the node can actually talk to one another, right? So they're, they're se- separated, they're segmented. Um, and maybe you want to run very large nodes, right? So maybe it's very memory-intensive-based applications, uh, large containers. Um, those placement policies that you could specify can basically determine... Well, what node should this be running on? And then the service connect application components, right? So um, the important thing to know is, as I mentioned, containers are not visible to the outside world, right? They don't even know each other exists. So we express the containers using the Kubernetes service layer. And the Kubernetes service layer is responsible for the routing of traffic. It's, uh, it allows you to configure specific uh, containers to accept or deny traffic from other containers. Um, It allows essentially the routing individually between the nodes. Um, So it's essentially service abstraction, right? And then health and scaling, right? That's that's one of the big things of why everybody's moving to microservices, right? So scaling functionality, other system components become unhealthy, you have failures, probes that um, make sure that things are healthy, and if something's not healthy, then it actually pulls that stuff out. So what if there's an unhealthy pod, right? Or an unhealthy node? Things fail. It, it, that's just the way it is in life, right? So the master remediates the pod failure. It says, hey, the, this this node is down. Wow. Uh, I, I'm not within the way that I'm supposed to be designed. What do I do? Redistributes the applications, right? And another thing to, to note um, that we have on here is persistent storage. So as I mentioned earlier, we wanted to make sure that no applications get left behind, right? Legacy applications that are moving to containerization need storage. It's just the way it is. So we lever, uh, leverage the Kubernetes API for it, and um, you actually have the ability to have persistent storage. So, uh, if a container fails or a pod fails on an individual node or host, it could be restarted. It can mount that volume, it can continue moving on. And then uh, the routing layer, right? So this is your load balancing. It it it's a plugin to assume and bind hosts to ports within an individual node, right? So. Uh, it provides the internal to external mapping, and it assumes that the networking is uh, configured so that it can actually access the pods in the cluster. So, your developers, how do they access all of this through the master, right? They could use uh, source control management, get. They could use CI, CD. Uh, they can, your operations can use existing tool sets. Um, nothing any special, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that right here. So, they could use developer CI, administrator CLI, Uh, your web console, and then through REST APIs if they choose to do so, right? And you have your users, your groups are on authentication. That's all done through OpenShift. Um, The projects are within OpenShift, and then Kubernetes leverages the namespaces. So the architecture application for OpenShift, source damage, build configuration, integrated Docker registry, image stream, uh, which is tied to source damage, deployment configurations. The other components uh, we leverage from the Kubernetes project, right, precision volume, pods, things along those lines, Routes and uh, software-defined networking. So uh, I'd like to introduce Ganesh from CA uh, to come up and tell you a little bit more about how they're using OpenShift.
1: Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Ganesh Raman uh, I work uh, for CA Technologies. Uh, uh, in SaaS operations and delivery. Uh, CA is uh, uh, one of the leading uh, uh, software providers. Uh, we have um, a rich portfolio of, uh, of products. Uh, CA also has... Um, sorry? Sorry? Okay. Sorry about that. Uh, CA uh, also has a few uh, market-leading SaaS solutions uh, in the project and, portf- uh, in, uh, uh, and portfolio management, agile, online payment security, performance testing, API gateway, identity and security, to, to name a few. Uh, these are uh, twenty-four by seven, by three sixty-five, uh, mission-critical applications accessed by by, by customers globally. Uh, so we have a global footprint in terms of uh, um, uh, our presence in North America, LATAM, uh, APJ, EMEA, uh, for redundancy, and we see these uh, uh, data residency constraints uh, c- uh, coming a lot these days. Uh, we are, uh, security is paramount, uh, we are in a, um, uh, a strict regime of audit, compliance, uh, uh, and security uh, that helps us uh, in, in getting all these compliance certifications. Um, We had a very uh, interesting uh, election season. Uh, Some of you may have accessed uh, uh, this app, uh, CNN Politics, which is built uh, with CA. Uh, This, uh, the mobile analytics uh, for this app, we call uh, the application uh, experience and analytics. Uh, That's one of the uh, SaaS solutions uh, uh, that we offer. And this runs, uh, this is one of the uh, solutions which runs on the the OpenShift uh, platform as well. So before I go uh, too deep uh, into how we use OpenShift today, um, I want to talk uh, um, I just want to take a few minutes to talk about uh, uh, where we started with this a few years back and what was the problem uh, that we wanted to solve okay so let's uh, uh, let's take an application with a with a uh, backend uh, web service it could be a small uh, tomcat app uh, serving uh, static HTML pages or or a jetty uh, with uh, with node js or uh, uh, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, l- let's take a small app, okay? Uh, how can we, uh, we actually deploy this service? So uh, let's say we have uh, one instance of the service can handle 100 users and requires just one CPU core. And uh, let's say we just have 100 users. We could simply run this service uh, on, a, on a physical box with just one core. There are no issues. But in SAS, when, when an application is, is out there in the open, uh, what stops it from 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 a hundred thousand users accessing that, right? So you, we have cases like uh, Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Uh, so we we are familiar with uh, the issues with scale, right? So with hundred thousand users, uh, taking the uh, the analogy a little further, uh, we need thousand instances of this, with 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 thousand cores. Uh, and uh, how can we uh, deploy an app with uh, with a, with one thousand Tomcats, right? So it's a fairly complex problem. And the solutions uh, that we looked at had to meet uh, a certain set of criteria uh, let me quickly walk through like what these uh, what these criteria are um, the first one of course is cost i mean sas uh, for for any SaaS to be productive uh, you need to have scale right and uh, the cost efficiency is, is really important in terms of uh, uh, the efficient hardware software and the operations labor uh, which we, we call it the opex uh, so uh, that's a that's a that's a critical factor right um The second one is isolation. Uh, When I talk of isolation, I mean resource isolation. We we cannot have, uh, when when we have a plethora of services running uh, in in a platform, we cannot have one renegade uh, service kind of taking away all the resources and bringing down the entire platform, right? So isolation is is, is, is a key criteria. Uh, The the last one is is flexibility. We we talked about uh, the Black Friday Cyber Monday example. Uh, What if we need to scale up? uh, scale out, uh, add, shrink services uh, dynamically. Right, so we should have the ability to be flexible, to be able to scale the uh, 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 the, the services easily. Okay, so how do we uh, how do we approach uh, uh, these uh, these uh, uh, issues? Uh, so one way to uh, to look at it is uh, having a set of huge, large servers um, uh, which, which 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 can run all these services. But uh, at the face of it, uh, we just we may have a few just a few servers to operate, but everything else is uh, bad about uh, about uh, about this uh, this idea. Uh, beat cost, beat isolation, beat flexibility. This is a non-starter, right? So what else uh, could we do? Uh, we could instead instead of uh, uh, going the uh, the humongous servers, we could have a, a hold of these uh, tiny servers, uh, which is which is a different option uh you definitely achieve isolation uh, with this you have a well isolated system but in terms of cost and flexibility it's again it's a, it's a it's a very bad idea right so enter virtualization so virtualization has uh, solved this problem in some form uh, i think uh, in the in the industry for the last uh, 10 plus years i think uh, um, uh, quite a few of us uh, have used virtualization in a, in a very successful way but does virtualization solve uh, all the problems, right? So, if, even uh, given a, a physical uh, bare metal server, I'm able to virtualize and, and make uh, smaller VMs of it. Uh, the isolation is good. Uh, it, uh, in terms of CapEx, yes, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good solution. But I still need to maintain a thousand VMs, right? And purely from an operations perspective, I still need to, uh, I still end up uh, maintaining a, a 1,000 VMs, right? So, is there a, is there a different way to to actually solve this problem? So here comes uh, containers. So uh, I just uh, saw uh, quite a few hands uh, uh, going up here uh, uh, in terms of uh, people who are using containers today. I don't need to preach to the choir. But uh, in terms of containers, I think uh, uh, though this uh, technology is fairly old, uh, it has been here uh, for a few years now, we see a rapid adoption um, uh, over over the last few years. Uh, There are valid reasons for that so with containers uh, in terms of the cost uh, uh, we do achieve uh, uh, capex opex is 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 okay good the isolation uh, initially there were concerns in terms of security but i think we are at a point where there's a lot of production workload which actually uh, runs on containers today right so we still have an issue so even if i move to this uh, to this approach we need to have a way to handle containers i mean who handles the the life cycle Of this container i mean what uh what do we need to do to scale uh to scale up uh uh, to to manage and to and to shut down the container right so we still have uh that particular problem so that's where uh i think the the openshift solution kind of kind of fitted the bill in terms of uh we we not only have the the right uh uh, platform uh for containers uh, to run we also have the orchestration which which is required for this uh, platform to run successfully right so uh, we at CA, we've been using OpenShift uh, since uh, uh, 2012, one of the initial versions of, of OpenShift. Uh, and uh, uh, with OpenShift 3, there's been a tectonic shift in terms of uh, the, the architecture. Um, uh, OpenShift 3 now uh, supports uh, Docker and, and Kubernetes, as as uh, Nick explained. So uh, one thing with Docker is uh, Docker has uh, kind of uh, pushed uh, the adoption of, of containers uh, to, to a point where now we, we, we think of Docker as... Uh, De facto uh, container technology, right? So, and Kubernetes is a is a proven uh, container orchestration platform, and Red Hat on top of it provides uh, all all the uh, all the administration in terms of the web console, there's the CLI, uh, the role-based access, self-service uh, templates, uh, security, and uh, much more, right? And uh, we at CA we use OpenShift in our own colo uh, uh, data centers, which are VMware-based, and 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 and, uh, and quite a lot at uh, with uh, with Amazon uh, Web Services. So I just I just walk through a few of the uh, uh, features uh, th- uh, that we uh, that we use today with, with OpenShift. Uh, we do have uh, multi-tenant apps, uh, but um, uh, what I mean by uh, multi-tenancy with with projects here is uh, within the within the OpenShift uh, uh, platform, uh, there is a there is a level of uh, isolation that these projects provide, where I can assign users uh, to to particular projects, where I can have resource. Uh, Uh, assignments, uh, constraints that I can put uh, uh, around projects. So there are are different levels of isolation which which we achieve with with, with projects, right? So we also use auto-scaling quite a bit. Uh, auto scaling with with uh, cpus uh, I think um, Nick touched upon it, so we have uh Hocular and and heapster uh, kind of uh, comes in with with openshift so uh whenever a part re- uh, reaches a certain threshold of, of a CPU, uh, the cpu uh, the 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 metrics are compared and once it crosses the threshold uh it can scale out based on the number of uh, uh replicas that you set as a part of the configuration right. So we also have different uh, deployment strategies which we use, uh, rolling, AB, uh, just name a few. Um, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, we do have uh, uh, protections in place. Uh, we do uh, have, um, um, in terms of the, the resource allocation caps, uh, both at the c- container pod level as well as at the project level, which helps us uh, manage our workloads uh, quite, quite efficiently. And we do actively use uh, the integrated Docker registry uh, that comes with the OpenShift 3, Three or three now, and uh, source to image is a very exciting feature uh, uh, that we use. Um, uh, without uh, further ado, I think uh, I would uh, introduce Jason uh, to to demonstrate uh, how uh, OpenShift handles uh, S2I. Thank you.
2: Okay, Um, my name is Jason Dobies. Uh, I'm an engineer at Red Hat, and I get the honor of doing the always fun conference live demo. Um, So you see now we're looking at just the intro or the the basic landing page for um, the user interface. Uh, I have one project deployed, so it's got a a normal multi-tenancy user model, so I'm logged in as myself. I have a single project deployed. Uh, As you can guess by the name, that's in case everything falls apart. I hopefully have something to fall back on. Uh, we're going to start with a quick demo So I just want to create a new project uh, A new project is going to be A collection of applications Various things I need to support My full-blown running service um, We'll come back and we are going to do another example For this browse catalog We're going to start with something simple um, Deploying an image And again, there are a lot of different ways we can do this But I want to address just your basic run-of-the-mill I have an image in Docker Hub It's named uh, under my account And all I want to do is deploy that Now, this may or may not be your typical model, but for a demo, it makes a great example because if you were to take origin install and get an install running locally, you can very easily start deploying Docker images you have created. There's no difference in uh, writing an image specifically for OpenShift. Now, you'll see here this warning about must being run as the root user. Um, I could go on and on about this issue. Um, What it comes down to is that where container development and container paradigms are still kind of evolving. um, And we're trying to get people realizing that. Running as a root not the best idea for a container. Um, Depending on your configuration, it may or may not even launch within OpenShift. Um, For my purposes, it will. But I wanted to, again, highlight that. So I drop back to our landing page, and you can see some stuff is already going on. Now, this one executed pretty quick, because admittedly, I have pre-downloaded the container or the image, Um, but as you can imagine, All that really happened there was downloading it from Docker Hub. It's, again, conference Wi-Fi, a little bit nervous about it. Um, But what are we looking at? So we're saying there's a Python web service out there now. I have one pod. A pod is the Kubernetes term for effectively a container plus some metadata. And that's it. It's deployed. Uh, it has taken the image from Docker Hub. It's created a container somewhere. Uh, I should point out it's a little difficult to see the URL, but this is an instance running in AWS. And this container is now deployed to one of my nodes that I have configured with OpenShift. So how do we get to it? Um, how do we actually access the service? Over here on the right, you'll see a button for creating a route. Uh, A route is your ingress into an application. Now, we make it so you have to do a specific extra steps, and there are ways to automate that. But then explicitly saying, I want this to be publicly visible. I'm going to autofill this in to make life a bit easier. We'll do Python demo. Uh, I don't have any kind of full-blown DNS server set up, so I'm simply using a zip.io address. Um, there's a lot of other options that I could mess with there What it's effectively saying is I want you to expose this service At this particular host name Within that I could have configured secure communications I could have changed um, The port that it maps to within the container But for our purposes um, This was simply This was plenty And no surprise, I did a uh, Hello world application Because that's what you do um, So that was as basic as they come uh, I do want to show one twist on this. So this was a canned image that, yes, I wrote, but um, you can understand that this would be an image that I don't have the code access to. How do you typically interact with them? Uh, environment variables tend to be your avenue for I don't want to rebuild the image, I don't want to have to recompile anything, but this is how I inject my own data or my own configuration into the running container. So in this case... When I wrote this application, I simply look for an environment variable named text, and that's what I'm going to display on the screen. So I saved that, and I'm quickly jumping over to the overview screen. You can see Docker has already kicked things into action. Uh, it didn't show it. I didn't get there fast enough. Uh, it scaled down the existing pod and stood up a new one. These containers become immutable. That it's not going to make that update directly into it. Either a code change to as simple as an environment variable change is going to cause an entirely new pod to get stood up. Now when we go to that application, We refresh it, we get our new text, goodbye world. I saw this once in a demo. It's kind of morbid, um, but it actually does end up making for a good example or a good kind of parallel to your typical hello world. So that's if we wanted to take an existing Docker image and get it deployed in OpenShift. But that's not the real fun part about working in OpenShift. So let's do another one. We'll call it the PHP database demo. This time we're going to start at the catalog we have within OpenShift. Now, when you install it, it gives you a set of images that you may want to build from. They range from your languages that you can build off of, and I'm going to come back to this for a PHP example, uh, all the way down to something more concrete, like a database. And when I stand this up, there will be a database container running, and I'll have configured it with storage or left it ephemeral. for now, we're going to start with the PHP builder. And I do say builder. That's a very specific term that we use. A builder image uh, contains the basis for what you would need to build new code for this particular language. So right now, I'm over here in GitHub. I have my PHP demo code, a uh, simple file, uh, and then the image that you're going to see. I'm going to name my application. I'm going to give it the URL to my GitHub account. Uh, it's not going to be um, any any URL for cloning it or anything like that. Just simply, here's where it is in GitHub. Uh, we're going to create a route. And again, I'm going to explicitly type in something that I know I can get to. Uh, if I were running this purely locally, it will generate a zip IO address for me. So I'm very happy I remember to do this step because often I just kind of click through and keep going for development purposes. So I've given it a name. I've given it um, the location of my GitHub repository. Now this one's gonna take a little bit longer. It's a good time for me to show you around the UI a little bit more. Right now it's doing a build and I can actually click into that and give us some information. Uh, I'm hoping you can read that. It's talking about pushing layers. These are Docker constructs. It's starting with that PHP base image which really is just um, your basic Docker image. It has some PHP utilities installed in it. It has some additional scripts on there for understanding how to build a PHP application and copy it to the right directory. You need to know a little bit about what this does. You'll notice I just specified the GitHub repository, and it just had a PHP file. If I really needed to care, I could dig into the builder image and figure out, oh, it puts it in slash ops slash app root, and here's how it starts it, and so on and so forth. Uh, again, we're using the PHP one. There are ones for Python. There are ones for Ruby. And then you can always write your own builder image. I wrote a series of documentation using Sphinx, if anybody's ever heard of that. Very similar to ASCII doc, which... Um, I know a lot of my coworkers use as well. Same type of premise. There's a builder image that will take a repository that has a Sphinx um, build system in, or I'm sorry, Sphinx files in it, and it will build it and put everything in the right location, and then poof, that all appears. So we see at the end here, push successful. I hop back. We see my pods created. The dark blue ring means it's finished. Um, You saw probably earlier, you noticed it was spinning up, and it was light blue, and you can kind of see it graphically move around. We selected to create a route for it, which I may have um, either mistyped or I've clicked on too quickly. Um, so we'll give it a second because it may still be looking for the database. So what this app is going to do for us, um, PHP demo, it's the right address. It's embarrassing, so we're going to end up coming back to that. Um, This would bring up a site. Now, it's written as a cloud-native application. So what it's going to do is, um, when it does start up, it's going to look for a database. It's not going to find one, so it's going to fail fairly gracefully, um, or in this case, it's going to fail entirely. Um, but I will still go through the process of actually adding a database to it. So let's imagine the site's running. We have our code out there. We have an image built. Um, that's great, but applications are bigger than just a simple PHP site. You are going to have your message queues. You're going to have your databases and so on. So we'll go up here to add a project. We'll browse down to what I mentioned earlier about the MySQL uh, here we'll type in some information, so I can have it generate a lot of this, but I know I need to connect my site directly to it So we'll fill out some basics here. It's going to use a user, it's going to have a password, all demo um, This way I can configure my site to actually use it When I quit hit create, we're going to hop back There we go. So, uh, this was the site that you guys were originally supposed to see We're going to pretend that server not found in here. I'm going to network hiccup Um, So while the database is standing up, you'll notice it does say database not available there. And this is what I was mentioning earlier, that um, the new paradigm of, hey, I'm I'm deploying a microservice, you don't exactly know how everything's going to start up. So right now we have our PHP site. It came from simply a GitHub repository. I pointed it at a PHP builder image, and it went and it created the container, it pushed it out there, and when I set up the route, it actually configured it to route to it. But again, database not available. We haven't finished standing it up. We haven't finished wiring them together. Now, I use an ephemeral database for this demo for simplicity purposes. Uh, If I had used the um, persistent storage version, it's a little bit more complicated of a demo where I would have requested from the cluster, hey, I'm going to need a persistent storage volume. It's going to be this size and so on and so forth. So first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to group this with the MySQL service. You'll see they both now appear side by side. But again, how does my PHP site know where that database is? How does it know how to connect to it? We're going to do the same thing we did earlier, except we're going to go through uh, the environment variables. I'm going to set them specifically for MySQL. We're going to use the values I specified earlier. Uh, I'm going to hit save, and as we hop back, again, it's an environment variable change. Don't have to change the code. Don't have to change the image. Still going to deploy a new pod for us. If we go over to... The deployed application, you'll see this time it found a database. Hey, the database is available. Since it's my first time finding it, we're going to run through an initialization. And all this is going to do is every time I refresh it, it's going to capture um, some information about the visitor who came. Container IP, this is the IP of the pod that's actually running. So we have a database running. We have the PHP script set up to it. Uh, I should also point out there is no specific route to the database. Uh, it was easier to see before I moved it in the group. Um, we don't want to expose that to the public world. We simply want other containers running in our application to have access to that. Let's hop over. So let's say I'm going to talk about things from a developer standpoint now. I have a git checkout of that repository. Um, If I'm making changes to it, I'm going to want to go through GitHub, so we'll do something very simple for the purposes of our demo. While that's pushing, if I come back and refresh it, you'll notice nothing has changed. And that should really come as a surprise. I've pushed things out to Git, but I've never told it, hey, there's some new code out there. I need you to rebuild things. So if we go back into OpenShift, we go into our build section, you'll see that we have our PHP site. Last build was number one. We've only done that once. And I'm going to kick off a new one. You can see down here in the middle, it started running a build. It should progress significantly faster because the vast majority of the layers have been created. So that earlier uh, screen where we saw pushing 1 of 9, 2 of 9, most of those basic ones haven't changed. It doesn't need to rebuild those. It's simply rebuilding things at the lowest code level. So you notice that finished significantly quicker. We hop back in and refresh it, and we now have our NAWS logo up there. Now I'm running a bit shorter on time than I would have liked to, so let's skip to the scaling portion of the demo. Oh, no, let me talk about at least what I would have showed. Um, You can trigger a GitHub hook, where I can go into this application, I catch a URL, and then I paste that into GitHub. And every time GitHub's going to detect a new push into it, it'll send a message over to OpenShift. So that whole process where I had to go in and say start build goes away. OpenShift gets the push request and understands, hey, there's something new in my repository. I need to do a new build. And it does exactly what we just saw. It creates the new image. It scales down the pod. It scales up the new one. Great for CI integrations. Great for production pushes. Um, you don't even have to take that extra step. It's an extremely developer-friendly environment that I'm simply working in the confines of Git, and it's using a lot of automation to pass things through. So let's say I want to scale this up to two pods. Done. Done. I now have two containers running out there. They're automatically load balanced by OpenShift. I could do there are deeper examples with a full-blown AB type of setup. But for now, we'll simply say uh, I need a little more bandwidth. So I'm going to have two containers running, same site, both pointing to the same database. Um, and uh, OpenShift is going to automatically load balance for us. So I'll hit refresh a few times here. And this is nice because... It um, made my life a little bit simpler for the demo. Notice the IP has changed. Uh, It's pointing at the newly built um, pod, and it's keeping the sticky session. Um, I can go to a private browser... And I'll hit refresh a few times there. You'll notice the IP has changed. What this is pointing out is that the new browser, it's considered a new session, it has pointed at the second container. And there are different ways to tweak that algorithm. But for now, it's just simply round-robin between the two of them. New users come in, and they'll sit there waffling between the two uh, IP addresses we have up there. So again, I did mention the term um, an A-B setup earlier. You could use this for... Um, rolling out new versions that we want to put some new changes in. We're going to say, I'd like 70% of my traffic to go to the existing service, and let's kick 30% over to the newly deployed image. And we want to see how it functions, see what comes up. So that's the basics. Um, you can see a lot more information. We have a booth over in... Um, the central area, I will hang around for a bit after that if you'd like some more questions. Um, but again, to reiterate the highlights, the big thing I wanted to show is the source image. Uh, extremely developer-friendly that I simply give it a git repository and it does everything else it needs for me. I never wrote a Docker file in there. It just took that from the PHP builder image. Um, I never had to write any specific hooks in that say, hey, I'm running as a container, hey, I'm running in OpenShift. Figured all of that out on its own and it automatically built it for us. Uh, so with that, I'm going to hand it back to uh, Nick to finish things up. So thank you, everyone.
0: So one thing that I actually wanted to talk about is uh, we actually have a pre oc program that we just uh, recently worked with uh, Amazon on. Uh, So we built a Red Hat Quick Start um, in collaboration with Red Hat and AWS with our OpenShift team. The Quick Starts are automated, so you can actually go. They're built on CloudFormation templates. You literally click it, provide some details within your AWS account, it stands up a cluster. Um, and if you want, you have the ability to request uh, $2,000 worth of credit from AWS uh, to deploy Red Hat OpenShift uh, on AWS as a uh, proof of concept. Um, so we'll support you with it. And uh, we're interested in anybody who wants to take a look at it. And uh, Amazon is pushing this with us as well. So obviously you could go to aws.amazon.com p- partners Red Hat, uh, to request the details. And uh, we would love for people to participate. So um, not a lot of people are doing this right now, but we're actually really interested, and Amazon's really pushing us to do it as well, so. And then uh, with that being said, obviously we have the uh, normal resource page. Um, we'll hand this out with uh, the presentations when they're shared. And then uh, we'll open up for Q&A. If there is any Q&A. <laughs> I know there's a lot to cover. Okay, hope you guys have a good rest of the conference.